Before I hand it over to the next inductee, I'd be remiss if I did not talk about Tommy John. I've been given an opportunity as one of the only players, the only one right now, to be inducted in the Hall of Fame with Tommy John surgery. It's an epidemic. It's something that is affecting our game. It's something that I thought would cost me my career, but thanks to Dr. James Andrews and all those before him, performing the surgery with such precision has caused it to be almost a false read like a Band-Aid you put on your arm. Touchdown! Alabama wins! Jack Nicklaus wins his sixth Masters, his 20th major championship. At the age of 46, four years older than anyone ever has been as a champion of the Masters. This is the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. Here's Dr. Michael Ryan. Hello, pros and joes, jocks and docs, athletic trainers, therapists, coaches, and fans. Welcome to the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center in beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. This is a podcast for athletes, competitors, athletic trainers, therapists, fans, sports enthusiasts, and anyone interested in learning more about the legends who have been vitally influential in the world of sports medicine, rehabilitation, athletic training, mental preparation, athletics, and more. We are going to peel back the layers of sports injuries from multiple perspectives to gain a greater understanding of what actually goes on in the minds of athletes, athletic trainers, physicians, surgeons, therapists, coaches, and more in the face of injury. And whether or not you are an elite athlete, recreational participant, passionate fan or occasional observer. We hope to bring you into our world to understand what it takes to achieve victory over injury. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. I'm completely starstruck, humbled, and excited to begin this conversation with such an accomplished, driven, tough, and amazing individual. Today's guest is arguably the greatest professional wrestler of all time, a seven-time heavyweight championship of the WWE, WWF, winner of multiple matches of the year and match of the decade in 2010, and a 15-time Slammy Award winner. He blazed new paths in the professional wrestling world, being the first ever to wrestle casket, buried alive, and hell in a cell matches. He headlined the Super Bowl of professional wrestling, WrestleMania, spanning three separate decades, and is the world record holder of The Streak, amassing 21 straight victories at WrestleMania. In addition to multiple measurable accolades, his reverence among his peers is unmatched. And the sentiment across the WWE culture and among fellow WWE superstars, both past and present, follows that there is no greater WWE star than The Undertaker, and he is one of the most respected wrestlers and characters in the business. His loyalty is unmatched, having worked tirelessly for 30 years, committing his soul to his close friend and boss, Vince McMahon, and the WWE, and the WWE fans, where no other can say the same. His dedication to his craft, his colleagues, and his company exceed all expectations, and his personal sacrifice is limitless. He has endured more injuries and setbacks throughout his career than any professional athlete that comes to mind, and he did so at the highest level possible. Only recently retired at the age of 55, he has left an indelible impression on the world of professional wrestling and anyone who has witnessed his story. He is massive in stature, standing 6 foot 10, 300 pounds, but even grander in heart. It is my absolute honor to introduce listeners today to the dead man, the lord of darkness, the man who cannot be destroyed, the indestructible force. Without further ado and pleasure, The Undertaker. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I don't know if I can live up to all that, though. I think after that introduction, these your audience may be a little bit let down. I'm not sure about that. I mean, you know, I think you've already lived up to all that. So the the, um, the interesting thing about this was as I was going through doing a little bit of research about this, one of the things that immediately stuck out to me was the, the longevity of your career. You had a career that lasted 30 years plus in the professional world. 
if you look at the average of, let's say, the NFL, MLB, NHL, you're looking anywhere from three years to five years on average of a, of a career length. And then if you take someone like a Tom Brady, who obviously recently played in the Super Bowl, he's 43. You are 10 years beyond that and still executing and performing at a high level. How, after that amount of time, how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? <laughs> Uh, it's, it's pretty rough. Most mornings it takes, a it, it takes a good while to get things moving. There has to be that, that initial assessment when the feet hit the floor in the morning, it's just like, okay, what, what, uh, you know, what's, what's hurting, what's, uh, you know, what do I need to kind of bring along a little slower than everything else? Um, so it's kind of a, it's the first thing I do is, is kind of assess and it, it's, it's such a strange thing after all of the years and all the the matches and all this, you know, it's like I have to sit there and, and figure out like how on earth, because I'll wake up some mornings with something hurting or, or that I had no idea that I've strained, pulled, whatever. And I'm trying to figure out like, how do you hurt yourself sleeping? <laughs> you know, it's just, but, uh, you know, just some, some days you, you, you know, you sleep wrong and, uh, and you wake up and you're like, you're like, what on earth? You know, and I look at my wife, like, what did you do to me while I was sleeping? Because, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, that comes with, it comes with the game. Yeah. Um, you know, the human body is definitely not made for the abuse that professional athletes put their bodies through, yeah. especially, you know, the football and hockey and, and wrestling. I mean, it's just, I mean, all sports, but those, you know, the high impact yeah. sports, um, the body is not made to do that. And then with us, you know, I, I wouldn't put, you know, like the, the severity of the contact, say on a, on a, you know, a Sunday NFL game. I mean, you know, if you're, you're on the line or, you know, I mean, there's some, there's some heavy duty contact with some very big athletic people, you know, to, big forces so but when you stretch it out over a year like we do like most people don't realize uh especially the casual fan that the life of a professional wrestler they're out on the road 270 plus days a year yeah there is no off season and you know you work the typical, I think kind of now the typical schedule is the guys will go out on a Thursday or Friday do live events Thursday, Friday, Saturday. If there's a pay-per-view Sunday, obviously you have a pay-per-view. And then, well, this is, I should say, non-COVID times yeah. in a regular sense of the word. And then live TV on Monday. And then there, there's a whole other group that has live TV on Friday. And, uh, you know, so it there's just no off-season yeah. and, you know, you're just putting your body through the ringer. And, yeah, and so you're really only talking maybe two days of rest per week and talking through really managing that and the load and the impact and the strain really throughout the year. I mean, 278 days is, is an immense amount of work for anyone, let alone what you guys do. Yeah, there was in the middle of, of, of my run. So, you know, I, I know that I had an eight year stretch where I averaged 250, 270 dates wow. a year. And, it, and you know, you, it's so weird. You don't really think about it. It's just part of what you do. And, and in fact, on those times where you do or you would get injured and you go home and there's that part of you thinking, okay, I'm going to be home for a while. But then there's the other part of your mind that's so conditioned to, for the go. 
Yeah. You know, it just so it, it's hard to slow everything down. You, you know, you're supposed to be going somewhere. You're, you should be here and you should be doing this. And it's, it's hard to adjust to being at home and, yeah. To, you know, rehab and doing whatever. Yeah. So yeah, that transition's got to be tough, and uh, that's something that I definitely want to get into a little bit later. You mentioned something before in terms of you know being a casual fan. I think there's there's a lot that people don't realize, um, and I think there's this you know perception that you know professional wrestling is is fake, is it's staged and it's mm-hmm. it's choreographed to a certain extent. But I know Jeff Dugas, who you know well, who's one of our partners here at Andrew Sports Medicine, and I've been to the matches, and there's nothing fake about gravity. The the chairs you guys right. use hitting each other aren't fake. And so, what would you say to people who still have that sort of perception to, to kind of really correct that misinterpretation. You know, the old school me, when someone would be, you know, say something derogatory about our business, like, ah, you guys are all fake or you're all, you know, the old school me would be more, all right, let's see how fake what I do is, you know, we've kind of, Vince has gone out and, and, you know, he's explained what our product is, uh, and, and people don't care if if you if you like what we do, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, there's still that one one percent in the world that thinks, oh, that's all. It's all a bunch of you know, it's all a bunch of crap. And it's like, well, if it was if it was as easy as you think it is, there'd be a lot more people doing it, and <laughs> you know, and, and being successful and, and and doing these type of things. And it, it's just it. You said it just a minute ago. Gravity always wins, <laughs> and and there's just so much that the human body can physically take. Right. And it doesn't matter whether or not if you're in the ring with your friend or somebody you like or somebody you don't like. It uh, doesn't matter if you know you got the thumbs up that night or the thumbs down. To get to that point, there's a lot of physicality that's involved in it, and uh, multiply that by 270 dates i mean it's just it's it's amazing that there's not more injuries you know if you look at your career too one of my thoughts was is you've been through so many amazing things and and done so many you know remarkable sort of uh feats in terms of you know what you've accomplished and longevity in terms of the decade matches of the year you know is there one event or one match or one thing that stands out to you that really is the highlight of your career personally uh, it would have to be WrestleMania 25 with Shawn Michaels. Okay. Um, I mean, as far on, on every level, the buildup, the the storyline, the, the the match, the execution, everything. It was just one of those nights where, minus one dive over the rope where I didn't get caught, uh, but other than that, everything was just flawless, and it was just one of those. Uh, I'll use Zen. It was just one of those Zen kind of moments where just everything come together and it was a perfect storm. And um, yeah, it's probably my proudest piece of work. Uh, Shawn Michaels, he could have a great match with a broomstick. I mean, he's just that talented and uh, you know, always, always had great chemistry with him, but uh, that, that probably is the, you know, that's at the top of the, of the page, but there was four matches back to back to back to back. There was two with Shawn Michaels and then two with Triple H and they kind of all were the, you know, it was it was a continual story Yeah. because Shawn Michaels and, and Triple H had such a uh, a storied history and, and I had a storied history with each of them separately. And uh, it was just, it was just really fun and getting in there and, and just doing what you do. Yeah. 
at the highest level. And, uh, you know, I'll always look back at those matches as, as you want to see what I do. This is what I do. That's the highlight reel so, right there. Yeah. It's the highlight reel. For that's sure. awesome. If that's the, the pinnacle in your mind, you know, kind of like to, you know, rewind, how did you end up going from a young kid in Houston, Texas, uh, with four brothers to meeting that point where you're at the pinnacle in WrestleMania 25. What was the development through your youth? Obviously, you're very athletic, played a lot of basketball, had four brothers, probably ran around and, you know, treated each other like, you know, wrestlers in, in your house like brothers do. But, you know, give us right. a little insight into how you kind of grew up and how you progressed through all that. Uh, you know, growing up, uh, so as a, we'll start out when, you know, age 10, huge, huge fan of wrestling. Uh, just absolutely loved, loved wrestling. Uh, it was kind of always a treat. Like my folks had, you know, a little bit of extra money, you know, sometimes they'd get tickets and we'd actually get to go live. I, I don't know, maybe two or three times in my life I went live and it, you just, I mean, it was just a big thrill. And then as I got older, you know, I got more into team sports, uh, you know, football, basketball, all of that, and uh, ended up playing basketball in college. So between my junior and senior year of college, we were just about to go to a summer break and my coach says, he says, hey, he's Callaway. He goes, uh, I'm starting to get a lot of inquiries uh, about you from like European pro teams. And I was like, really? Uh, you know, I could care. Yeah, I was just yeah. at that point. I'm, I, I know I didn't. I knew I didn't have NBA skills. I mean, I wasn't. You know, <laughs> I knew I wasn't. That wasn't my in my future. But uh, I was like, well, that's, that's that's interesting. And they say, well, they, you know, what I'm hearing is. You know, these people say, you know, they want you to bulk up a little bit because they play a really physical style. We're, you know, we're talking 1986, 87. And I was already into lifting weights and, and, and big for a basketball player. But, you know, or, you know, the world of wrestling, I look like a praying mantis. But anyway, <laughs> I started working out and trying to get, you know, a little stronger, a little bigger. And uh, there was this this guy that worked at the health club, the, the, the gym that I started training at, he was trying to find somebody to go through a wrestling camp with him. Okay. Every day, you know, we struck up a, a friendship and every time I come in, he was, man, come on, just go through this wrestling camp with me. You know, and I was like, no, nah, I think, you know what? I think after my senior year, I'm going to go and try and play, you know, I'm trying to play some pro ball overseas. And it didn't matter every day. It was the same. It was the same deal. So through this process, I kind of started catching up with the wrestling where wrestling was because I hadn't watched in years. So I was trying to catch up with the product and, you know, I'm why I'm seeing who was, you know, who was hot and who was doing this. And, you know, it changed so much, you know, from when I watched it as a kid and uh, kind of noticed like there was nobody my size that was really that athletic. Yeah. You know, the more I studied, the more interested I got. And then the process of, do, do I really want to go to Lithuania? Yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or do I, you know, and I, thank goodness, even at, the, at a young age, I was, I was pretty practical in the way I thought like, okay, even if you make a team, I mean, where, where are you? You're going to be sitting on the end of the bench in in Lithuania or, you know, or, or, or someplace. And it's like, it, it just didn't really sound that appealing to me. So eventually he, he wore me down and we go and meet, the guy that, that was going to train us and i mean it was it was almost instantaneous like it was like yeah this is this is this is what i want to do yeah what and, what was that exact 
moment or was there a specific sort of time where you had a, you know, a match or a training session that you said, yeah, this is, this is it. I, I don't really want to go to Europe anymore. Yeah, it was almost, and it was funny because the guy that we, that, that we found to train us, I mean, basically all he did was steal our money. <laughs> There's a story yeah, behind that, right? Cause you, you, Oh yeah. Yeah. He, so the guy's name was Buzz Sawyer and we go and we meet with him and, uh, you know, he says, okay, you know, it's, I think, what, what was it? I think it was $2,500. Now, yeah, it was a lot of money for, you know, 1987. I mean, and I'm on scholarship, but I, I don't have any yeah, money. Yeah, college kid, yeah. Yeah, right? And uh, I'm thinking, wow, okay. He says, well, i tell you what I'll do. Like, every person that you bring in to the camp, you know, I'll take a certain amount of money off. And I, and I think I ended up talking to people into going to this camp who ended up hating me for <laughs> the whole process. So we show up one day and there's, I don't know, there's 12 of us standing in this guy's front yard, <laughs> Buzz's front yard and, you know, go knock on the door. If not, 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 I don't know. It seemed like 10, 15 minutes. Finally, you know, he answers the door, answers the door. He's completely naked. <laughs> and he, and he's great. He's like, what do you guys want? What are you doing in my yard? You know, I was like, uh, we're here to train. Oh, was that today? Oh, okay. Hang on a second. You know, so he, he goes and gets, uh, you know, a, another guy that was staying in the house and uh, who I'm actually, to this day, I'm still friends with, who actually started training me. His name's uh, Perry Jackson. So he goes out for, a, I don't know, a good solid hour, hour and a half, just runs us around the neighborhood, does I mean, just completely gasses us out, right? So we can barely, you know, barely stand. And I mean, I was in pretty good cardiovascular shape at the time. And still, I mean, you know, he had his orders like, okay, I want you to wear them all out, right? So hour and a half later, he finally comes staggering out in the front yard. There's not even a wrestling ring, right? <laughs> it's his front yard. I mean, I, we're, and um, he says, all right, so all you guys line up. So Buzz Stewart, you know, we all line up. And so we get down wrestling you know, amateur position and man, he just, he just cranked on us all, stretched us, you know, chicken wing, just, you know, but he was trying to run us off. You know, he wanted to take the money and then make you quit each week. We, you know, or each time we would come back, there'd be a few less guys there and, until finally I showed up and it was just me and I show up to work out and same deal, knock on the door and knock on the door, no answer. Yeah, and then I started kind of trying to look in the windows. All the furniture in the house is gone. He'd already left. Oh, man. He, he'd already went to a different territory, you know. I, guess, I don't know if it was one of those deals where he had to leave in the middle of the night or what, but uh, he, he couldn't take his – he had a really beautiful Rottweiler yeah. that he couldn't take with him. So I, I did take his Rottweiler. Got something <laughs> out of it, yeah. I got Yeah, I got something out of it. The Rottweiler got a great home, but uh, – <laughs> Yeah, so that my career didn't get off to a very uh, auspicious start. I guess it, it was just uh, it was a valuable lesson that I sure. learned, uh, especially for that time period and how you know how you dealt with people. And you know, there was a lot yeah. of people that would put their hand out and then you know have a knife in the other hand. Yeah. You know, it opened my eyes to the real world, and yeah. uh, it was pretty rough there initially. Yeah. You know, and, and of course, you know, I ended up and I kind of jumped over this part. So that started during the summer between my junior and senior year. But so by the time I show back up for my senior year, 
uh, of eligibility, I mean, I'm, I'm consumed at this point. Like I am like, I, I know, yeah. but I've made this commitment. We had a pretty good team and I'm going to try and make it through the season and do the right thing here. And so my whole mindset through this time period has changed now. I'm not just a college student anymore getting taken advantage of here with money and I, I don't have any, and it's pretty lean. Yeah. And um, I, I remember being at practice one day, as soon as I show up though, as soon as I show up my senior year, I'm close to 280 pounds now as, as a basketball yeah, that's player. A big, that's and, a big, that's a big basketball player. Yeah. As a big basketball player and uh, not in today's terms, I guess, but then it was, yeah. and my coach sees me and he's like, he bans me from the weight room immediately. Oh, really? Yeah. He was old. I mean, he was so old school, like size equated to slowness. Yeah. And, you know, although I was faster, I could jump higher. My shot was still the, you know, the same, but it was just like, you cannot go to the weight room. You're banned. Didn't like it. He did not like it. And uh, we start fall practice and he got us two lines at midcourt. He'd throw the ball up. It was kind of a tip drill, hustle drill, you know, tip the ball. And then the two guys that were, you know, in the circle, scramble to see who's going to get possession of it. Well, obviously now people are just terrified of me. There's six, eight, six foot nine, 180, 190 pound guys yeah. that are, and they're just terrified of me. So we do this drill, coach throws the ball up and a kid, kid, I was maybe a year older than him. So I went to jump, he undercut me. But, you know, he was so skinny and frail, like when he undercut me, he knocked himself down and then I fell down. The, the, I just kind of went straight rage, right? And I jumped up real quick and I was full on wrestler at that point. <laughs> like I stepped on him, I stepped on him, right? And I was like, if you ever do that again, if you ever undercut me again, I will break your flipping, you know. <laughs> all of a sudden, whistle blows, cowboy, get out of here. Get out of get out of my gym, right? And it was at that moment. That was the moment right then. I was like, it's not fair to these guys and it's not fair to myself. Yeah. I need to I need to cut ties. So coach is he's just screaming at me, right? And I went to each guy, apologized to the guy that I threatened. Then I went to each guy and I said, Look, I'm sorry that that I'm doing this. I said, but I have got something else I've got to do. Yeah, I'm having this moment with all my teammates and the coach is just still screaming just at me. Out. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a very interesting transition point, though, for you. It was almost like this is the wrestler that was to be was just waiting to come out almost. Yeah, it, it definitely was. And it, it came out and it was good that it did, I guess. The circumstance was kind of ugly, but it was good that that it came out the way it did because I didn't waste team's time. And who knows how, you know, what would have happened later on. And the same thing happened, but being in the season or, yeah. you know, I mean, we were just practicing at that point. And yeah. so it, it, it happened. And, yeah. you know, I, I remember hearing one of the guys like, coach, he's, he's not coming back. He's leaving. He's, oh, he'll be back tomorrow. You know, and I'm like, no, coach, you don't, he's leaving. Right. That, that was, was it. it. That was it. I, I wow. was gone. Yeah. I find that very fascinating. What's interesting about that is that, you know, if you go back to your experience with Buzz Sawyer, you know, you, you outlasted everybody. And then I think that probably pretty soon afterwards, you can correct me, but your, your next steps and your next kind of transition into wrestling really kind of highlighted this, which I think is a lasting theme in your career and your personality of being able to outlast and endure pretty much anything and anybody, because, and it may 
the next part of your career, that's, that's where you ended up really waiting eight months where you're going to the same office yeah. again and again and again, waiting to get booked. Is, is that right? Was that the next part of your career path? Yeah. So now at this point, I suffer all the repercussions from my family. Uh, everyone, you know, obviously, everyone was disappointed that I was leaving school. You know, you know, obviously, the coach, he just tore me a new one in the newspapers and in the news and everything. And so I, I just had that mindset, okay, you know, my parents come around and they're like, okay, do you need help? And I was like, no, I, I don't need any help. I'm going to do this on my own. And uh, I had no ends anywhere in the business. I, I was not a legacy. I didn't have you know, I just didn't know anybody. So that was the only thing that I knew was the bookers and the guys that are calling the shots and doing things are going to be at the Sportatorium in Dallas on Wednesdays. And sure enough, if I go there enough, someone's going to notice me. And for eight months, like no one noticed me. And now I'm at a point, like I stayed in the dorm for as long as I could, you know, they run me all out of the dorm and, uh, so some nights I'm, I'm sleeping in my car and, you know, I'm working in bars and doing whatever I can. I'm, I'm hawking everything I own. I'm, I'm selling and, uh, you know, just to make ends meet. And then finally, you know, it was just like I was right on the cusp of of like, OK, this isn't working. You know, what am I going to do here? But this isn't happening. And that would be that, that last day that I went and. And it was in my mind that this was probably going to be the last time that I come to the office on a Wednesday. And sure enough, Fritz von Erich walks in that day and thinks that I look like one of his sons that it, it passed. And that's that's how I got my break. Um, it, it was such an awkward, long eight months. You know, it just I can't tell you how many times where some, you know, like the promoter would come in or the booker would come in and I would go to get up and they just I just like I walk was right a ghost past, yeah just walk right past me you know and then you just got to sit back down and like okay well maybe they'll get me on the way out what was it in your mind that drove you to say I'm coming back you know I'm not going to be denied I mean most people after a week would have said yeah I'm done and especially I think nowadays there's a lot of this well if, if it's not there tomorrow then I'm done I'm gonna I'm change I mean you spent eight months doing that what what was that about your mentality that allowed you to focus on that and, and pursue that yeah so I kind of always had that mentality I started playing basketball late when I started playing basketball I was obsessed with it and, and trying to learn as much as I could and and I knew how that felt and this feeling about wrestling and my connection with wrestling was was even stronger it was like I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing, but I don't know what to do to get to the next step or for somebody to give me an opportunity. I I just, I I just don't know what to do. And this was as close as I could get myself to the people who could help me. But I knew inside of me that wrestling was, was my passion and it was what I wanted to do. So that's what kind of motivated me. And, you know, as I'm trying to put a, you know, a plan together and, and like working these little bitty tiny independent shows and for no money and but you know ring time at that point was that was the most valuable is just being in a ring because you just don't you know not everybody has a ring to get in and 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 work out they didn't have performance centers there and they didn't have there wasn't a wrestling school per se so it was that was the only thing i needed to do yeah do you remember your your first you know match where you felt like this was a step in the right direction other than just kind of, you know, wrestling just to get on there. Do you remember the first one that you're like, okay, I'm going somewhere. 
in, in a strange way. So my first real match with a real company, um, this is right after Fritz, Fitz Ron Eric had saw me. Um, so my first match was with a guy by the name of Bruiser Brody. Bruiser Brody had a big reputation, uh, you know, as a, as a tough guy in the business and, you know, somebody would work you over pretty good. So that's who I drew that first Friday night. And, you know, I've always considered myself to be, you know, really respectful. And like I, like I said, at this point, I still don't know the etiquette of, of wrestling and, you know, but I do, I, I was raised in a way where respect people and, but wrestling's a different kind of animal. And I remember standing in the ring and, you know, here comes Brody and then it, it, everything become real at that point, like crap, you know, <laughs> Earlier in the week, I'm sitting in an office waiting for somebody just to say hello to me. And now here comes Bruiser Brody down the aisle, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but then he gets in the ring and I don't, I just, I don't know what happened. It was just like, I'm bigger than he is. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was the beginning of my demise. It's like, you know, because, you know, you see people on TV and they're bigger than life. And then. You know, and like I said, he had a really big reputation, and I'm like, huh, okay, well, all right, I, I may be okay here, right? <laughs> anyway, so we we start the match, and I'm still I'm, I'm nervous, right? It's my first professional match. I'm actually going to get paid for this, and you know, I'm I'm on my way, and like I was so tight just because of nerves. Like you would have had an easier time bending a piece of angle iron. I mean, I was just, he's sitting there, all right, kid, loosen up a little bit, kid. And, you know, and so I shove him back in the corner and he's talking to me the whole time. He's like, all right, kid, relax a little bit. You know, he could tell yeah. that I was, so I was going to, I backed him into a corner and I was going to give him a big shove into the corner and, you know, we'd back out and start over again. Well, you know, we're kind of, kind of hand fighting a little bit and I go to shove him hands slip off and I kind of, I kind of pie face him a little bit. And all I heard was, all right, kid, <laughs> you know, <but> <laughs> now, now I'm in it. Right. So we, we tie up again and I try to shoot him off for, I was going to clothesline him. Right. So when you're that green in the business, when you're that new, you don't say anything. You just keep your mouth shut and do what you're told. And, and hopefully, you know, you don't get <laughs> mangled. But I'm thinking, you know, in my head, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm a clothesline bruiser Brody, right? <laughs> I shoot him off, and here he comes off the ropes, and I'm pulling my arm back, right? And I'm about to clothesline him. And he wore these big, furry caveman boots. And then that's all I saw was that out of nowhere was this big boot, and it just catches me right in the chin. <laughs> and it, it went pretty much downhill from there. Uh, you know, he picked me up and he's all right, kid, we're going for a walk. Right. And he throws me out of the ring and throws me onto the ring announcer's table. And, uh, he grabs a chair. It, it wasn't like the, the metal folding chairs. It was a metal and it folded. It was the thick metal that had wood slats. Okay. So I'm laying across the ring, ring table and he just, boom, right across the back, the chair, the wood slats explode out of it just sound like a cannon. It goes off in here. Right. And it, it was one of those deals where the audience just went, Oh, like, I think they thought he killed me. Really, <laughs> I mean, And it wasn't over yet. Right. He ties me up in the ring. So I can't, you know, I'm in the ropes and now he's just running from one side to the other and kicking me in the head. Finally, he, he'd had enough and he pinned me. 
And uh, at this point now, I'm kind of second guessing my career choice, right? I'm like, yeah. what in the world is just what you know what happened here? But that the moment that that it all come together was I got back and you know went, I was like, Mr. Brody, I thank you for you know having this match with me. And he's like, you, you'll be all right, kid. Just you know, just take it easy, okay? But I overheard him telling somebody else, the booker or the promoter, he's like, what are you going to do with that kid? And uh, I said, oh, we're, you know, we're going to try and ship him off somewhere. And he goes, well, I can tell you right now, you ought to keep the kid and get rid of some of these other guys, which some of the other guys could hear this too, which, you know, had years of experience. And they're kind of looking at me like, and I'm trying to you know, like look away, but, you know, he was given his endorsement of me. Yeah. That, at that point, I was like, okay, I knew I'd screwed up. But he saw something in yeah, me. But you had something and, there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was kind of the moment that it was like, okay, I need to really learn what, what it is that this is all about. And it was a valuable lesson that yeah. I learned right out of the get go. And how long was it from that time point until where you, you really got your first shot to move to the bigger leagues? Where, you know, at the time, I guess it was the WWF. Well, it was still a while. So this is 1987, 88. And, um, I worked for a couple of weeks there. Things were so competitive, like I couldn't get booked really anywhere. Like nobody knew any, there was no film really on me. There was no, you know, there's this, oh, we got this kid. And like, well, every territory is trying to, they're trying to draw money, right? They're trying to put butts in seats. So I don't know that I want to take a risk on this greenhorn that, you know, hadn't sold any tickets yet. So I end up getting the opportunity to go to South Africa. There was a wrestler there while I, while I was in Dallas his name was Steve Simpson. His father was a promoter in South Africa. So he he brought me to South Africa and I lived in South Africa for almost four months. Wow. That in its own right, it was it, that was right in the middle of apartheid. Oh my gosh, I mean, yeah. It was nuts. It was absolute mayhem. So I'm yeah, I'm 21, 22 years old, and now I'm in South Africa trying to figure this whole thing out. Yeah. And, it was just crazy wow. and then came back from there still couldn't get booked finally jerry lawler or jerry jarrett finally gave me a shot and booked me again i definitely would not call it a overnight success yeah. by any means or yeah. any stretch of the imagination yeah when you finally did get to that point there was a match that you were able to execute in front of vince at one point and that was the the transition right to where you know he saw you and then eventually he kind of reached out to you where there was a meeting that went down is is that kind of how most of that went and you you were a little bit worried about you know what your future was potentially with the wwe in terms of what your character was going to be is that how all that went down well yeah so uh, eventually i got to wcw sid vicious and dan spivey were the skyscrapers both two six foot eight six foot nine guys real impressive big huge guys Anyway, Sid got hurt, and uh, Jim Cornette had seen me somewhere and said, hey, there's this kid down in Tennessee right now or Dallas somewhere, and he goes, he could fill that spot. You know, he's, he's a pretty good hand. So I, I get to WCW, which at the time, that was the company that I really wanted to work for because they were more of a traditional old-school kind of wrestling deal, and uh, – so I was there for about eight months and uh, I, I went in to, to renegotiate my contract. And it wasn't kind of a deal where I was trying to 
I wasn't trying to break the bank. You know, I knew I still had to pay dues, and I, but I, I was just looking for just a little bit of a bump. And uh, they basically set me down in the office right there downtown Atlanta at the CNN building, and they looked me square in the eyes and said, "Hey, you're you're a great athlete, but no one will ever pay money to watch you wrestle." Wow. Yeah, that's a that that's a that was a straight right hand that uh, you know I wouldn't. I was like, okay, well, okay, you know. So I'm trying to process the fact that they don't think that I'm going to ever draw money, and fortunately, I knew and I could. So we started in the process of trying to get me a meeting with Vince, and um, one of my hip at this point, my my left hip is is already giving me fits. And Bruce Pritchard and, and uh, someone else is there saying, just watch him. You know, they, you know, Vince wasn't interested really either. He said, just watch him. So I go into this this match, this pay per view with uh, Lex Luger, and I call Bruce up, and I like Bruce. I can barely walk. My hip is, you know. He goes, just go out and do what you can do. Yeah. I'm like, okay. So I go out, and needless to say, it was not impressive. And Vince is like, yeah, he's another big guy, you know. And he says, just meet him, you know, you got a meeting. So eventually I did get the meeting at Vince's house. So I'm thinking to myself, like, I didn't go to the offices. I went to his house. I said, you know, they're they're definitely interested in me now. And so we had, I don't know, a two, two and a half, three hour meeting. I'm trying to be as charming and witty and, you know, everything that I can be. And, you know, I think I'm just killing them, right? I'm just blowing them away with my, my personality. And we get to the end of the meeting and Vince looks at me, at me and he goes, he goes, well, he says, we don't really have anything for you right now. You know, maybe after WrestleMania, this is probably July, August, this meeting happens. You know, WrestleMania is March, April. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, I'm, I, I'm thinking in my head, like I'm, I'm in this room and I've got Bruce Pritchard and Pat Patterson and JJ Dillon, Vince McMahon. I'm in my head and I'm hearing this and I'm thinking, I've already given my notice down there. Oh, I've already quit. I've already quit down there, right? I've already, I'm working on it. So now I'm back to trying to find bookings where I can. And eventually I end up going, I got a chance to read for a movie and the worst movie ever made, Suburban Commando. <laughs> so when I did that, and that was through WWE, I guess Hulk Hogan was in the movie. So okay. I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, they're still interested in me or they wouldn't have had me go out and read for that movie. And so now I'm at home and I'm watching the product and all of a sudden we're getting close to November. They put this giant egg on the set, right? I'm just like, and at this, at this point at WWF, I mean, like they had all these over the top kind of characters yeah. and I mean, just outlandish kind of things. I'm, I'm sitting at home and I'm like, Oh my gosh, he's going to make, I'm going to be egg man. <laughs> you know? I, I, so I, at this point I'm trying to grow my hair long and, I said, oh, you know, he's going to make me shave my head. I'm going to have to shave my eyebrows. <laughs> I honestly worked myself, you know, to, to probably where I was close to having an ulcer. I mean, I was so, like, talking up. Totally worked up about it, yeah. And uh, one day the phone rings, and, uh, it, and I was like, yeah, hello, is uh, is this The Undertaker? It really sounds like Vince. And then I'm thinking, Undertaker. I'm trying to figure out, like, if somebody's trying to play a joke on me, but I'm pretty sure it's Vince and Undertaker. Undertaker, not Eggman. Yes, sir. This is the Undertaker. <laughs> I, had, I had no clue what Undertaker yeah. was, meant anything like that. And he was like, oh, that's great. He says, can you be up here tomorrow? I was wow. like, oh, yeah, yes, sir. You know, so they they flew me up to Stanford the next day and 
you know, they had the storyboards laid out and he had had this character. He had just never found the right guy to, yeah. to do it. And he said, you're my undertaker. Yeah. And that was the phone call that changed it right there. That was it. I mean, that's what changed the whole course of my career and, and everything. The character development it, it, as the undertaker is, is pretty remarkable. And you can see the evolution of it. How much of that did you contribute as, as you went through your career in terms of, you know, the eye roll and the, the, the motions and the, the moves and the, the dressing, how much of that was initially evolved from when Vince presented to you to what it became over the course of your career? Yeah. So initially it was all Vince. Like it was his, that was his baby, but something grabbed me right away with it. So I'm studying the, the, the product that what everybody else is doing. And I know I want to try somehow or another and set myself apart from what, you know, and this is the time period, you know, where you get the stereotypical wrestlers interview, you know, well, let me tell you something, you know, the, and I was like, I don't want to do that. That didn't feel good to me. So, you know, I'm the undertaker and it was, you know, it was all wrapped around death and it was the, the undertaker character was based on the old Western style undertaker. Yeah. You know, the two guys go out on main street, they have the gunfight. One guy loses, the undertaker comes out, measures him for the pine box. And so that was the origins of it. Okay. So he gives me the, the character before I debuted, I actually have a couple of matches that were, TV matches, but they were all done out of sequence from my actual debut. So I'm still trying to be as athletic as I can because I'm like, well, you know, now I'm, at, I'm in, you know, I'm the WWF now, so I'm going to unleash everything. But it, I knew like it doesn't work. This this character can't be that athletic all the time, or it can't. It just doesn't work. So like I had to figure out the, the slow, methodical pace and yeah. and the way that I that I talk. It, and I always, you know, like I said, everybody talked loud and, you know, everything was brother this and all of that. But it was like, how do you, you know, how do you get people's attention? Like People are yelling, screaming, and you go, okay, that guy's a blowhard or whatever. But when people talk low and quietly, that's when, that's when they lean in because they want to hear what, what it is you have to say. Yeah. I would talk to some ridiculous, you know, taking their souls and burying them, their rotting corpse would be consumed by worm, you know, yeah. and people are hearing this and they're just like, did he just say <laughs> his rotting flesh is going to be eaten by, you know, and I studied all the horror guys like Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger and yeah. Michael Myers and all those things I'm studying. And not that any of those completely fit, but there were like little bits and pieces like, okay, I want a little bit of this in, in what I'm doing. And then trying to figure out the work style that was all me and yeah i think vince would have been fine with me being athletic and just looking the way that i look but yeah. it just didn't work for me i kind of became obsessed with it like even when i wasn't working i was always dressed in black yeah you know i had coats made for like winter coats that were long just like the ones and it wasn't that i was trying to bring attention to myself it was i didn't want people to see something different and, and this is even the time before internet and cell phones and all that but i was like i want people to see what they see on tv and they see me in, in real life i want to i don't want to be too far off right so there's a lot of things that i didn't do because i didn't want the two to, to be movie deals or something would come up and yeah it would be no uh, it doesn't work because i don't want to go out and then be mark calloway here wrestling was my passion this is what i want to do 
and I can't do this, you know, and be this guy here and then try and come back and tell people that this is, it was somewhat obsessive, but it was in my head, it's what I had to do to make that character because it was, it was over the top kind of character, but it was important for me to make it real. Well, I think it was so effective, like you said, because you clearly set yourself apart from a lot of the other personalities in such a unique way. And the fact that you set that tone and maintained consistency, I think created this aura that lasted and, and was so pervasive for such a long time that, like you said, you only recently started doing interviews outside of that. I mean, that creates right. this amazing character that people really kind of believe in and, and buy into um, because they, there's no way to separate it. And so people realize, okay, this is, this is the guy, this is the undertaker. I think it's such an impressive way to have approached that. You know, somebody, you know, they kind of give me a little side eye, like, you're taking this a little too far, but no, I'm not. Because one, and I tell, I tell young guys all the time when I, you know, when I talk to them and they're coming up, I was like, you never be content with where you're at. If you're doing this to get recognized and get a free cup of coffee at the Waffle House, you are in this business for the wrong reasons. If you do not excel, if your goal is not to be at the top of the page, it's this life is too hard. It, it really is. It, not that you're not going to, you know, you may not get there, but if you don't strive to get to the top and be on the top, I mean, it's it's a tough life. It's tough on your family. It's tough on your body. It's tough in every way. So you, you know, it was just like, I want to keep being at the top of the page or I want to get to the top of the page and then I want to stay there and then I want to change things. And I want to, you know, it was, people yeah. thought I was, you know, I was a little weird, but in my mind, I knew what, I knew the process that was, I felt comfortable with and it was worth the sacrifices that I had to make because the payoff came. And yeah. so that mentality, is that part of your personality as you, you always were a kid in terms of always striving to be the best or, or never being content? Or is that something that you developed later on as you became a professional wrestler and, and later on in your career? It really, uh, I think it manifested itself to the degree it is once wrestling and, and Undertaker came about. Because that, that was when everything was like, okay, this is no longer a pipe dream. This is happening. And I want this to last. Because, yeah. you know, I, I loved it. When I, when I started playing basketball, I mean, I was, everything was basketball. I wish it kind of stretched, uh, you know, completely across the board with everything that I do. But, it, but if it's something that I'm passionate about, then, I mean, it's, it's all systems go yeah. all the time. As you started to really build on this character and assume that, at what point did you finally realize, hey, I've made it to the, the point that I've been searching for? And, and not that you had made it and said, I'm content, but you, you actually felt like you'd had got past that first part of being green or being new or trying to struggle? When was that first time you realized that? So I debuted November of 1990 with WWF at the time, Survivor Series of November 90. So Survivor Series 91, I wrestled Hulk Hogan for the world title. And it was strange because I was still kind of being billed as the bad guy. And I'll never forget, it was in Joe Louis Arena and on the walkouts, it was like 60-40, I was the good guy to Hogan, right? Okay. I mean, that's that's the, the golden goose. Yeah. Right? And it, it kind of threw me. Uh, I mean, I knew that the wheels were already in motion with the fans, that they were already kind of trying to turn me you know, into a good guy already, but Hulk Hogan was still Hulk Hogan. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, when I walked out that night and it was 60, about 60, 40, it was just like, okay, you know, big things are now about to happen. And, you know, there was still, you know, obviously it's still a roller coaster ride, but that was the first time that I felt like, okay, I, I, I mean something in this industry now. And, um, you know, it was, it was a really cool, really cool moment. That's an amazing moment, especially given, like you said, how, you know, prominent Hulk Hogan was at the time to walk out and start to realize that, wait a sec, this is, I might have something here. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was surreal to say the least. You know, not only with fans, obviously we are, are you beloved and that was probably the transition point, which is, if you think about it, it's pretty quick within, you know, a year of you making your debut in the WWF now WWE. It's also very apparent, you know, doing some of the research and reading and really listening to a lot of things that you were very well respected among your peers. You know, what was it about you that when you got into this position, how do you think you came to be so highly respected and revered by the guys all doing the same job you were? I just think probably my preparation was one. And, and then like it goes back to the things that that I sacrificed for the sake of the character. But there was also, you know, I, I didn't treat and I always tried never to treat anybody any differently. Um, my dad gave me a, just an awesome piece of advice real early on in my career, uh, you know, and it was it was he was like, son, he goes, just always remember the toes that you step on on the way to the top are connected to the asses you're going to have to kiss on the way back down. That's great. It was awesome, right? And so I always tried to, whether I liked somebody, I didn't like somebody, I never tried to let that affect. I, I, you know, when I would get to the arena, I'd go in, I'd shake everybody's hand, say hello, make eye contact, you know, whatever the situation, I always tried to make, and it didn't matter whether you were, if you were Shawn Michaels or, or Bret Hart or somebody pulling cables for, you know, a camera. I tried to treat everybody the same and, and, and learn people's names and engage and, and you know, and, and make them make it inclusive and feel like, hey, this is a team effort, which it was. But a lot of times people get, they get a little misguided and think it's all about them. And, you know, fortunately, I had the, I guess I had the presence of mind to realize, like, well, it doesn't matter. You know, if these guys aren't behind me and these guys don't support me, they have the ability to make me look really bad if they want. And, um, I mean, that wasn't like, I wasn't consumed, like, oh, I got to be, you know, I got to be a nice guy because of that. But that was just part of my thought process. And then uh, I think it was, you know, I mean, we went out. You know, we, I would go out and, uh, you know, we'd, we'd have our good times, but the good times never interfered with the next day's work. That was a, with me. That was just a no, no. Mm -hmm. If you can do both great, but don't be late, don't be late to the town or don't be dragging, you know, in the match and, and cause you're hung over or whatever you're, whatever you were into the night before doesn't affect what happens don't miss your flights don't miss your don't miss the towns and then you know it, i mean it was just kind of my approach to to things and it was nothing that i ever vied for like i was like well i'm gonna be your leader and yeah you know, it was just it just kind of happened organically and people you know they, I was, like people are coming to me and like hey take what do you think about this and I, you know i got this issue with this and you know this is like wow am i have i been here that long now that i'm you know i'm the <laughs> I'm the godfather. You come to me on my wedding. My <laughs> wedding. 
<laughs> but, but with that, I mean, you eventually, I mean, there became a, I guess, an internal kind of tribunal or council where you, you were the judge and final decision for a lot of your peers if, you know, some guy was late. Isn't, isn't that right? Yeah, wrestler's court, man. Yeah. It was uh, it was kind of a way to let somebody know that they were screwing up. And usually you can either let some people go and they hang themselves and then they get in all kind of trouble, you know, with the front office. Or you can handle the situation like, okay, yeah, we're going to poke a little fun at you and we're going to embarrass you, but you need it because you need to get yourself put back in check. And it was kind of a one, you know, it, it kind of helped relieve a lot of times the, the, the monotony of being on the road. And, you know, I mean, it was, it's a tough life. So, you know, it could give a little levity, but it also served its purpose to say, you're screwing up. You might want to check yourself and figure out what's going on before it becomes an issue, a much bigger issue with the office. And then, there, of course, there were certain times it was just it was just good hearted fun. Too. fun. Yeah. Hopefully they were, you know, most times guys were smart enough to understand, like, yeah, OK, I need to change a few things. Yeah, I think it's also become apparent, too, for me in learning about you is that you really have a, a deep sense of caring for the people you work with. And that's not always the same that could be said, uh, you know, really in any job. But I think that it's really apparent with that, like you said, where whether you liked them or not, or whether you enjoyed, you know, wrestling against them or not, or, you know, whether there were people just pulling cables. I mean, it's clear that you are, are very caring about the people you work with. And I think that Jeff Dugas actually told me one of the stories where you were wrestling Shane McMahon. You know, the, the plan was he was going to jump from the top of the cage 16 feet up in the air and land on you on the table. And I guess the day before, you know, medical cleared it, said it's okay. And they had a guy in, you know, full pads, you know, uh, test, test dummy, do it. And then the day of, you, you know, you kind of looked at him and said, hey, man, this is kind of crazy. If you don't feel it, don't do it. And, and he said, if, if you're worried about it, you know, let's call an audible and I'll climb back up. And, you know, he ended up going through with it and apparently had, was concussed or whatnot. But what, what struck me is that at, at the very end of this, Jeff Dugas mentioned that you were the first person waiting for him as he walked up that stage to give him a hug and say, hey, man, you're all right. I mean, that speaks yeah. volumes to the type of person you are. Well, I, you know, there's, you know, the, the, the business is hard enough as it is. And I, I just kind of started using this, this phrase here recently. You're always just one or two inches away on any given night from there being a catastrophe happening. So there's enough risk in, in what we do. You know, that's just times a thousand when you start talking about risk. And uh, a lot of times people get... You know, that was at WrestleMania and, you know, the streaks on the line and everybody kind of gets caught up in that and they want to have their WrestleMania moment. And, you know, they want to live up and they want to they want to do right by me. You know, they, that's you know, that's important to them and they, they want to deliver on that that stage. But, you know, sometimes you, you can't think clearly for yourself because you get too caught up in into the grand scheme of everything. Yeah. And it was just important for me to, to, for him to know, like, okay, if anything, you know, we're going to make this great and then we're going to do the best that we can with or without that, that fall. And then on the, on the backside of it, just for him to want to take that risk, because inevitably at the end of the night, my hands, the ones going up and and for him to want to take that risk to make that match what it was, um, you know, it's my, I mean, I'm obligated to that. I mean, that's, yeah, you're, you're, you're doing it for the company. You're doing it for me, but it's a big risk. And I just can't let, you know, I can't from across the room 
you you good? Yeah, I'm good. No, I mean that was you put your life basically on the line right there, and um, I just I just it's important for me that people understand that I don't I don't take that stuff for granted. Whoever I work with, you know, I just it's important to me. Everybody that's ever made me look good or, or or you know done something like that, it's one I appreciate you doing it for the business. Two, I appreciate you doing it for me. So. And, and, and Shane and I, are, you know, we, we go way back together yeah. too. So, but it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter who it was. Yeah. Um, I tried to talk Mick Foley out of taking the one we did in ninety. Yeah. So I, I didn't. I was like, we don't need to do don't that. Need to do this, yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, that's, that's it's very meaningful with that approach. And I mean, it also speaks volumes that these, you know, your your colleagues are willing to do that and willing to make that sacrifice. Speaking of this idea of sacrifice, um, you know, I'd like to get into the injuries you've dealt with. Mm-hmm. Seventeen surgeries, is that right? Give or take. Give or take. Yeah. Yeah. We, we kind of lost count, I think. Yeah. I remember it. So I was watching the, the documentary on WWE Network and the scene where you're at HSS and it's one of the medical students who walks in. So have you ever had surgery before? And you're just kind of like, yep, been here a time or two. And, yeah. and, and, then he, and then he starts going through and he's like, well, what about the surgery? And you can sit there and you go, man, we're going to be here for like three hours. And so I, I yeah. felt for you right there. But um, I, I guess let's start with, you know, the, the hip injury that you mentioned that really kind of limited your sort of debut in front of Vince. What was that? What happened with your hip there? So I used to do a move that I'd kind of taken from a guy that I worked with early on by the name of the spoiler. And now everybody's seen me kind of walk the top rope kind of deal. Well, I used to do it. Most people know that like I, I'll grab their arm, then I walk up backwards and I walk down and then I hit them. Well, I used to do it where I, I would slam them in the ring. I would go and then I would tight rope the top without holding on to anything. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I would dive off the top rope and drop an elbow on, on my opponent. So that that's what started the, the hip injury. And I, re, I remember there was old timer. His name was Jody Hamilton. And this was when I was in WCW and that's where I, you know, sometimes I would do it three times a night if depending on how many shows that we taped. So I'm 315 pounds and, you know, I'm jumping off the top rope landing on, on that hip. And I remember coming back him looking over his bifocals up and he's like, kid, he goes, he says, you're taking years off your career. I was like, ah, no, sir, Mr. Hamilton, I'll be able to do this forever. I was already, by the time I got to WWE, I was pretty much already walking with a limp, but it was, it was just the wear and tear. It was arthritis getting built up and yeah, just that, that was my, I guess my hips were my Achilles really. Yeah. So that, that was really what started first, you know, the first thing to kind of start to plague you. What was your first surgery that you had to undergo? The first one was basically, uh, having just basically having some chips taken out of, out of my ankles, um, just from different, you know, kicks and different things. So I, I, they were getting kind of caught in my joint. So I, I'd lived in Nashville. So Dr. Thomas Bird, yeah. you know, he's he's done a lot of my surgeries yeah. and uh, excellent. I mean, just an excellent surgeon. And yeah. he's, he's a legend. So he did his fellowship here in Birmingham way back when, but he's a legend. I mean, he's, you know, sports doc. He's a pioneer in hip arthroscopy, so he's he's very well known. Yeah. So he's fantastic. I mean, but so you, he's the one who initially started operating, doing some of the surgeries on you. Yeah, and in fact, even when I left Tennessee, I would always I'd always go back. I would always go back and see Doctor Bird. I mean, okay. so yeah, so started with they started kind of small bone chips, things like that. 
and then it got into I uh, I, I took a nasty fall off the top rope and uh, I broke part of my clavicle off, got that scoped out. And then from there went into, I think, I think I tore up heck or something. I mean, it just, I, I can't, honestly, I can't even, I can't name them chronologically. Yeah, I, I remember them. I, I had a bone chip in my elbow that was so big. He had to split the tricep to get the bone chip out of my elbow. Gotcha. I could take the chip and I could move it around and make it stick out. It was always kind of a good conversation piece. But uh, I've got, I don't know if you. Oh, those are all your scope photos. Yeah. yeah, got, a, yeah. got a whole, whole stack yeah, of them. Yeah, I, I got up bags of these. I've got oh little, little jars everywhere of body bone fragments yeah. and everything else. So the funny story about tearing the pec. So I tore, the, I, I tore my pec from uh, muscle for the tendon instead of the tendon coming loose from ah, the bone. Okay, yeah. So obviously it's a it's a much worse tear. Yeah. You know, if you've been around Dr. Bird and his sense of humor, it's you know, it's kind of dry, but I remember <laughs> going in for my post my post surgery meeting and it was like now Mark, he goes, Now I know you know a lot more about medicine than I do. <laughs> I was I was early on I was I was horrible. Uh, I mean I honestly I was like he'd tell me six weeks by four like i mean I'm, I'm getting back in the ring so yeah. he was letting me basically he was letting me know he goes i know you know more about medicine than i do i just want you to understand if you tear it again that i'm probably not going to be able to fix it so, yeah. you know yeah. you know that was his that was dr bird's way of saying hey don't be a dumbass just yeah. <laughs> you know do your rehab and and that was kind of you know when i really started figuring out that I didn't know as much as I thought I did. And yeah. Of all your surgeries, what was the most difficult one to come through? You know, you would, you would think it was, think it was the hips, but the, actually the hips, man, they were, uh, those were awesome. Yeah. Uh, they were, they were really, I was pain. I woke up pain free, yeah. you know, after being in pain for years and years and years and wake up and it's all gone. Those, those were, those were nice. And the hips usually get all the, you know, they get all the attention. So somewhere along the line, I, I started tearing my supraspinatus. You know, I, I'd heard it and I, I'd go see Dr. Bird and he's like, I really want to fix this. You know, he says, this is not anything you, you know, you want to mess with. And I'm like, I, I know Dr. Bird, but I mean, I'm right in the middle of something, right? You know, I said, can we get through? And he says, is there, you know, can you give me a, you know, a shot of cortisone or something like that? He goes, I can do that, Mark, but I'm just telling you that at some point we're going to need to address this. So he would shoot me full of cortisone and for eight months, well, I'd be golden, right? And so I, I did it three times, right, on different injuries. And I remember doing it the last time. So what it, I was working with Kane, which is who's a huge man, and uh, I had thrown him into a turnbuckle, and I was gonna, I was going to scoop him up and kind of throw him on my shoulder. Which is remarkable, well, by the way. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't remarkable. So anyway, so I, I get him and like all of the momentum and everything kind of stops. So I've got like a 330-pound man sitting here, and I'm trying to get him here. So, I, you know, I kind of give it one last, and it was a pay-per-view, right? So yeah. I, I try to give it one last, and I heard it. But I got it. But I got him up, right? Yeah. We we finished the match, 
a couple of days, man, I can hardly, I can hardly move my arm. I, I go see Dr. Bird. And, I, and once again, I'm right in the middle of something. Actually, I was, I went to see Dr. Bird over like my knee or something else. It was kind of a dual, yeah. dual thing. And, uh, you know, he, he goes, Mark, you know, your knee, we can take care of that. But he said, I'm really, really worried about this tear in your shoulder. I said, I know, I know. I said, I promise you, I promise you I'll get this thing fixed. And he, and he was really, you know, Dr. Bird is, he's as low key and laid back as they come. But he's even, he's at the point where he's trying to relay the fact that my shoulder is really torn up. So I was like, I was like, I just, you know, I promise you this is the last time. And he reluctantly, he knew I was going to work anyway. I, I wasn't going to commit to having surgery. So he did, you know, he gave me the shot. So normally by the time I would fly back here to Austin, you know, the shot had kicked in and, you know, everything was, was golden, right? So I get the shot, I fly home, wake up the next morning. It's like I never got the shot. Yeah. So I called Dr. Bird. I was like, okay, let's fix this thing. And this says a lot about Dr. Bird. He's like, Mark, he goes, that shoulder's so bad. Like he says, it's out of my realm yeah. of, so he sent me to see Dr. Andrews. You send me Dr. Andrews. That's okay. Well, that's great. <laughs> so this is the only time in, in my life and my experiences with doctors. So I fly to Birmingham and, uh, you know, I, I got there and I come in. It's the only time it has ever happened. And it being Dr. Andrews and I go into the examining room and he was already in the room. Now, I don't know if you, I mean, waiting for you. I, yeah. I, I don't know if you've ever been to a doctor and that's happened. It's never happened with me and it not, especially Dr. Andrews. Right. Yeah. So I walk in and he's, you know, he's, he's sitting in a chair and like, so I'm kind of taken back that he's there already. So I'm standing there and, you know, I'm looking at him and he's looking up at me and no, nobody says it. I bet it, it goes like 10, 15 seconds. Nobody's just, we're just looking at each other, <laughs> you know? And uh, finally he goes, he goes, son, he goes, he says, can you, can you lift that arm? And I was like, yeah, I can lift it. And he says, can you, can you lift it forward? And I said, yes, sir. I, I, I can lift it forward. And he looks at me, you know, and he goes, you know, there's no reasonable explanation why you're able to do that. You shouldn't be able to do that, sir. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I mean, he says, you've taught yourself how to, to use that arm. Anyway, and then he, he explains to me, now he's explaining to me how bad the, the tear is. He'd already had the, the MRIs and the MRIs with contrast and all that. And it, 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 he goes, so we sit and we talk about the injury and, you know, he's examined me. And so he just, you know, he just keeps shaking his head. And I'm getting a little nervous. So I'm like, well, okay. And this is what happens next. He goes, can we meet back here in about an hour? And I went, um, sure. He goes, he goes, I, I got to think about this. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, like I'll, I'll meet you back in an hour. He says, yeah, I just, I just need to think, I, I need to think about how to approach this. So I go, <laughs> I got Kevin, I think Luke, we went and had lunch. I come back and we meet again. And he says, I'm going to, I'm going to try and fix it. He says, I, I don't want you to get your hopes up though. Because I'm not sure that I can fix it, but I feel like I owe it to you to try. Wow. And yeah. And I'm thinking in my head, like, okay, it's Dr. Andrews. 
and he's going to try. And in my head, all I'm hearing is, it's fixed. Yep. Right? Yep. So we scheduled the surgery. I, I remember we, we had that surgery, and I remember kind of, you know, coming to in the recovery room, and I can see my wife, and I can see a look on her face already. I mean, even as groggy as I was, I can, I, I could tell, her, you know, her face, it wasn't good. And before I could even say anything, Dr. Andrews comes into the room, and he goes, he goes, well, we found it. <laughs> I go, you found it. He goes, he goes, yeah. He says, your supraspinatus is completely detached and was rolled way back here. He says, we clamped onto it. And I, and I, I think Dr. Dugas assisted. Yeah, he told me he did, yeah. Yeah. He goes, we clamped onto that thing and we pulled, we tugged. And he said it was still, because it had withered. It had been torn so many times and, you know, it just stopped getting blood. And it was kind of withering up, I guess. And he goes, I might have been able to get it back. But he says, you, you wouldn't have been able to, you, you know, I'd had frozen shoulder or something of that effect. Yeah. And then he goes, you know, you also, your, your biceps tendon was detached. He said, I fixed that for you. <laughs> he, said, he says, that should give you a, 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 you know, a considerable increase in strength just from having that back where it was, you know, back in the groove that it's supposed to go in. With that, you know, I was like, wow, okay. So for the next few years, like, and, it, it, and it's crazy because I always had to be cognizant of where my arm was. Yeah. Like if I was wanting to throw a clothesline or if I wanted, like I had to change the way that I did a couple of moves so that I didn't get caught yeah. with my arm. My arm would have probably <laughs> fell off in the, in the ring. So I had to change the way that it, and I always had to be cognizant of trying to get my arm in there set on my, on my lat. Yeah just to kind of give it the support. And uh, so I did that for three years, I guess. And then I finally called Dr. Dugas because uh, it was, you know, it was starting to kind of bother me again. And I hadn't slowed down any. And Dr. D, I was like, uh, y'all doing anything new for the shoulders now? He's like, he goes, yeah. He says, come on down. I'm, yeah, I'll, I'll get you fixed up. I was like, okay. All right. And now it, by this time, our, you know, our relationship has grown. And yeah. so it's kind of the same thing. I go have the surgery and, I wake up, I see my wife, she's sitting there and her, her, the look on her face wasn't, you know, as tore up as it was the first time, you know, <laughs> so and, automatically a little bit better this time. Yeah. I, I feel a little better. Like, okay, he got it fixed. Right. About that time, here comes Dr. Dugas into the room and he looks at me, kind of shakes his head and he goes, he goes, plan A. Nah, not so much. <laughs> he goes, plan B. Nah, that didn't work either. <laughs> He goes, so we went to plant C on you. He detached part of my infraspinatus and then rerouted it over the top. Pulled it all the way over, yeah. Yeah, so he's making it. It's doing double duty now. So where I was 100% exposed, you know, now I'm anywhere, I guess, from 50, 70% covered. And it's held up great. Yeah. Once I healed it, you feel like you regained a lot of the strength? A lot more strength. Yeah. I, I'm still my my right side isn't as strong as my left side, but it's twice as strong as it was after the yeah. first surgery. I mean, I've got a lot of the strength back, and and it's always just a cool story to tell. Yeah. It's yeah. just you know how he cut part of one muscle and makes it yeah. making it do two. And plan C medicine got to have plan C right. Yeah, absolutely. With that, you know, obviously there are several other surgeries that you know a broken orbital bone. Broken hand, broken foot, two broken orbital bones. So much of of what is focused on peripherally from uh, media, from fans, is that 
they see the injury, they see the surgery, and then the next thing they focus on is your back. And a big part of the focus here is there's a lot to that. Can you describe what it's like the day of surgery, what you're feeling, what it's like waking up, and then give us a kind of a general idea of after you have a surgery for a shoulder or for a hip, what are those next couple of days like? And then, you know, give us an idea of what your mentality is going through the rehab process before you're actually, you know, back to where you need to be. Yeah. So, you know, first you, you, you have to come to grips. You, you wait until like the, the very last minute, I guess, when you meet with your doctor, you think it's not going to be as bad or you hope it's not going to be as bad as what, you know, it possibly could be. And then, then you get the news like, okay, this is, this is what you've done. And, you know, you guys will kind of give you a roundabout. This is a six to eight month process here, you know, cause our business goes year round. You know? So you're trying to, now you're thinking in your head, okay, well, and you're, you're always trying to best case everything, right? It's like, okay, well, if I bust my ass really hard, you know, I'll rehab and I can, maybe I can get back here and I can do this. And so, so it, it, it's coming to grips first with the fact that, okay, you're going on the shelf and you know, that that's you know that's bad enough, especially if you're involved in a in a, in a big angle or or, or or whatnot. So, um, so then you have the surgery, and then it's kind of the realization that next you know those next few days because my shoulder, you know, I had the big brace on. You know, I slept at the hotel for a couple of days. You know, you just can't you can't move. You kind of have to come to grips with with that part of it. It's like man, this is, that's when it really comes real after the surgery. And, um, from there, I mean, it's like, okay, you got to quit feeling sorry for yourself. And then you, once that happens, you really have to figure out, okay, what's, what's my plan here. Your mindset is full throttle. Yeah. I got to get back. That's your, your whole goal is to get back in the, in the least amount of time, you can but here you are and you're you're not even you know you're not even using the pulleys yet to 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 lift your arms up and um it's such a um a a mind game because you know you're also wondering am i going to be the same you know and what what limitations am i going to have all you have is time now because you're not working yeah you're not you're not working out you're not doing so you're just you just have all this self-doubt come into you it's not quite as bad when you're young. You just have that mentality. You're going to bounce back. But once you get some years on you, everything becomes a lot more like, okay, am I going to be able to come back from this one? You know, I know, I know I had that with, you know, like I've had all these surgeries and is, am I going to be able to bring myself back to a level that, you know, I can perform. It's just that process of having to, and I didn't have it early on, but I, as, as I got older of, of baby steps, you have to, you have to do the, the baby step and you have to put in the work and it, and it's so often so tedious and, it, and, I, and you'll get to a point where like, this doesn't hurt anymore. Why can't I do this? You know, why can't I do, you know, if, if he's telling me 20, you know, I can do 20 pound external rotation well, I bet I could do 30 or, or, or 40, you know? And yeah. so you have to, you then sometimes if you're certain people, you, you try it and then you realize, Oh, that's why not. Cause you're not, <laughs> you're not ready to do that yet. Then yeah. you get set back. And uh, those first few months where it's just the, the rehab part of it, 
I mean, those were always for me, that was the hardest part was just coming to grips with the fact that this is all I get to do. And, you know, when you're, you're used to training and keeping yourself at a a level and now here you're, you got a makeshift pulley that you're pulling with one arm to get the other arm. So you don't lose your range of motion. And, and then you're excited because like, wow, that, that went up a little easier, you know, it went up a little easier today than it did yesterday. But the mental discipline that it takes to do the baby steps yeah. is, um, you know, that's something that I had to learn the hard way because early on, I, you know, that's why I was referencing Dr. Bird and, you know, him telling me, uh, you know, I knew more about medicine than him because yeah. if he said six, I was back working at four. Yeah. You know, our protocols now are, are a lot different too. You know, I mean, we have doctors and we have trainers and, you know, that's where our business has evolved so much because that you have to be cleared to perform where there was a time where all I had to call was like, I'm good to go. Yeah. Yeah. That first really, like you said, the six weeks is, would you say that the mental aspect is, is much harder than the actual physical aspect of dealing with the pain and stiffness and getting through? Yeah, pain's always easy for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I've had a high threshold of pain. The mental aspect of it, though, is is it was just always brutal. Yeah. Um, Did it ever get know, any easier with subsequent surgeries, or was it always the the hardest part that you struggled through? Initially, you know, at the beginning it was hard, and then I kind of got to the point where I thought that I had an S on my chest, and it didn't matter. I'll I'll bounce about quick. But in the you know in the second half of my career, when I would you know, when I would get these injuries, I was, it was really, really tough because like I said, you just never know how you're going to bounce back the older that you get. One, you, you, you don't heal the same way. You don't heal as fast and you have to put in, you know, and I, I, I would tell people that like my last few years, I had to put in twice the work for half the results. And that's just without injury. That's just, just my training in general, yeah. just, you know, that's just what comes with age. Yeah. Is there is there a transition point as you're moving from just the rehab phase to where you start to gain strength and then you finally realize, oh, okay, I'm, I'm close to where I need to be. Are there specific things that you can recall or identify with the shoulder or with the hips where you kind of said, oh, I can do this now and I wasn't able to do it before? Yeah, that, like I said, you your rehab sheet or, and you know, if you have somebody that you're, going to, which I highly suggest because uh, there again, early on, I would do what rehab I was going to do. I did it on my own. I mean, I had the, the packet and the sheet and it was all explained to me, but you know, I mean, it, it is what it is, but, but it's vital, crucial to have a good rehab person to come back from so that you don't do things, you know, feeling really good one day and then do something stupid. And, and set yourself back. So, you know, yeah, once you start feeling your body get back into normal ranges of motion and, and the fact that you feel like you can lift more than a, a two and a half pound weight, you know, then it starts to snowball. And then you can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel and that, that light's pretty murky for a while. And um, I, know, I know for me it was, it was yeah. really difficult those first three months, it, it just they, they were always tough for me. Yeah. Do you feel like as an, an, a professional athlete that during that phase, do you feel like there's an aspect of you that kind of gets forgotten? 
because you're no longer on stage or you're no longer on the map. Is that something that really affects you? You think that going through that? Oh yeah. So you're, you're in a business here where our business, and I, I guess it, it really translates to any, any sport, but not in our world, you know, there's a ton of guys are waiting to come up and waiting for that, that opportunity to, however it comes, you know, who, who knows, like, while you're out, who's going to come up? Are you going to be able to get your spot back? That's all you're, that's all you're thinking about. Who, who's going to come up? Who's going to take my spot? Am I going to be able to get back to, to that? I mean, I was, I was here and I was on the cusp of doing this, this, and this, and now here I am, I can't lift my arm. You can't do anything, right? Especially right after surgery, you know, and just except feel sorry for yourself and, yeah. You have to fight through that. You have to, you know, you you have to set your goals and and know, like, I'm going to do everything in my power to be better than I was when I got hurt. But that's tough. Yeah. It, it it's really tough, and especially if you're susceptible or, or injury prone. You know, I mean that it'll really it'll it'll weigh you down. Yeah. Were there any um, either tricks or things that you learned throughout this process to? one, either help yourself through those difficult times mentally, or were there other things that your wife or family that were able to help encourage you to, that made it easier? Well, I guess in an unfortunate way that I, I went through so many, you know, I always got through the, that rough spot and I always knew that I was going to come back because I had so much, I had so many instances where I'd already been through it. You know, so I, I knew kind of later on how to how to process each part of the journey and my goals, you know, especially at the, at the back half of my career, the goals had changed just points where, you know, you're here and always oh, he's he's hurt as this. He's hurt that he's not going to be the same. And then you you use that anything negative I heard. I loved it because it was always I'm going to prove you wrong. Fed off it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to. Yeah, I absolutely fed off of it. You know, my wife is great in the sense that cause she was in the business, too. So she she has a pretty good understanding of what it takes and, and injuries and, um, you know, just making sure that, like, you need to put the ice on and you need to do this. And, you you know, the stuff that you sometimes overlook because it's it's just a pain in the butt. You just want to, you know, she's there to like, you know, OK, this is this is what where we have to get and yeah. this is going to help you get there faster. Uh, you know, always having a game ready there, always having the game ready full of ice and ready to go when I'd come in from from rehab and then re- would come in from training. It was just yeah. a great a great support team is is, is invaluable. really yeah. With all your injuries, you know, there obviously a lot of orthopedic injuries, you know, we're we're kind of carpenters. We can put things back together pretty easily. The one injury that stands out that was a little bit more concerning from from an outside perspective was your concussion that you sustained that really you ended up in the hospital a couple of days understand that you don't remember a lot of it, but can you talk to, to what that was like after you kind of regained some, some realization where you are and, and what the recovery process was like with the concussion compared to say, you know, a, a broken hand or a, you know, broken bone? Yeah, it was, that was real bizarre because I think we went to the ring that night. It was after nine. I suffered the concussion probably within the first five to 10 minutes of the match to this day. I can't pinpoint it. To this day, I don't remember. The, I mean, I've watched the match back now. To this day, I still have no memory whatsoever of it. Yeah. Um, there was a process, especially at that part of my career, 
of things that I had to do from stretching to if I was, if I was getting any type of, of shots, if I would get any kind of fluid drain, any, all, I mean, there, everything was kind of laid out and it was always the same. I don't remember any of that. My memories of that day, I, the last memory that I have is about two, three in the afternoon when my wife come backstage and we had a conversation and that was my last memory until I woke up in the, I woke up in the hospital, but I still didn't, I didn't know where I was at. Didn't know my name. Wow. They said, this is another crazy deal. So they take me to the hospital, give me a CAT scan. And I guess the, the first doctor that came out tells my wife and Vince that, uh, okay, well, he's broken his neck and, uh, <laughs> it was an old fracture. Oh, wow. That I never that I never knew I had. Wow. Yeah, but so another doctor came out, and they, obviously they're freaking out. And another doctor had read the scans again and said, "No, that's, that's those are old fractures, and you know everything was." So they're coming in. You know the you know the protocol there. They they come in about every five ten minutes. Uh, can you tell me your name? And it was getting frustrating. I knew my wife. I knew her name. I didn't know my name. I didn't know where I was at. Um, so after about four or five times of them coming in and me getting really frustrated, the nurse had come in, she leaves and I'm like, I'm getting, trying to get my wife right. What's my name? Wow. So like, yeah, she's, I'm trying to get her to Try, cheat for trying me. Trying to cheat for you. She goes, she goes like, babe, I can't cheat for you this time. I can't, you know? So it was another couple of hours yeah. before, like I said, no, I have no recollection when yeah. I watched when I finally did watch it back, it was like I was watching something for the something very else. first time. Yeah. How long did you have symptoms after that? Headaches, dizziness, vision problems? I mean, was, is that a long lasting sort of experience? That one was, and that was really the, other than a headache, I couldn't even tell you how many concussions I had before. You know, obviously we didn't keep up with things until early 2000s. So there's no telling how many I had but that was the only one that I had that like I was light sensitive noise sensitive. I mean, and I probably a full week I stayed in the dark. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was pretty intense. Do you have any residual symptoms from the combination of that plus other concussions you've suffered even today? Well, strangely enough, like, so it started getting close to WrestleMania the next year. And, uh, you know, they were asking me, you know, was I going to work or and I was like, well, I, I need to go see Dr. Maroon and see what's going on. I, I want to make sure that I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't doing any kind of long term. So I fly to Pittsburgh and uh, I meet with Dr. Maroon. So they give me the impact test. Right. You know, you do all that on the computer and I finish that. And so the doctor he goes, uh, you mind answering some, some stuff on paper? I was like, yeah, sure. So I did that. <laughs> so Dr. Maroon finally comes back from seeing some patients and he, they talk for a minute. He goes, he said, I, I think you're going to be okay. Your scores were about 80% better than most of the Steelers. <laughs> your score was better than your initial baseline test when we started in early 2000s. Wow. He was blown away. I was blown away. Yeah. And he was like, I, I, he said, there's, there's no, 
reason why I should say that you can't get back in the ring. He says, if it happens again, you should really consider, you know, not doing it. But wow. yeah, that's, that's a pleasant surprise, huh? You know, I was nervous. Like, yeah. you know, I was thinking this is not going to be good. And, you know, that was something I wasn't ready to face. Yeah. Go, go figure. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, with that, it's interesting because obviously with the NFL and concussions, that's become a big thing. Um, and you've mentioned several times about how the WWE has really evolved in their ability to care for their athletes and, you know, from a medical standpoint. And, and there have been some sort of criticisms that I've, I've seen before about the WWE and how they really manage healthcare and their, their talent. Would you say that the evolution has been in a, a much more positive than people have said it to be? And do you think that the, the WWE takes good care of, of you guys from a health standpoint? I, I think so. From my perspective of breaking into the business in the late 80s to where it is now, I mean, I never, I mean, obviously I never played in the NFL or Major League Baseball or the NBA, but I do know the protocols that are in place when an athlete, one, gets concussed to any kind of surgery, any injury. I mean, they have to be cleared by several different layers and there's no, you know, it's not one of those situations where you can fake it. Uh, you know, you get put through a, like a, a physical that says, okay, this is what you had surgery or on, or this is what you injured. Let's see, you know, where you're at with it. So there's no, you know, if it's still hurt or if there's an injury there, they're not going to clear you. Gotcha. Um, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's night and day to where it is now. And I, I think we're on the, without any kind of union or anything like that, I, I think we're on the same level as, as the other major sports brands. That's great. That's uh, great to hear. Yeah. I, I mean, it, that's one of the biggest parts of our evolution is, is the way the athletes are treated. That's great. When you look at the longevity of your career, what, what do you think, you know, especially with all the pain that you've dealt with, the surgeries, the injury, the off time, what would you attribute to that longevity? What are the things that you think have helped you, you know, maintain such a long career? Passion. Uh, yeah. Just the, just the love of doing this for over 30 years. I mean, this is kind of, I haven't always been the greatest father or I haven't always been the greatest husband, but I'm blessed and fortunate now that I'm getting to correct those parts of my life. But there was, there was nothing that anybody could really throw at me there as far as our, our business that I didn't feel like I could help somebody with or give somebody an answer or give somebody some advice because I'd seen so much and, and done so much. And, but it was always just the passion to do this and, and do it at a, at a really high level. And then at the end, it was, I, I wanted to perform, but I wanted to, I wanted to see how far I could take my body knowing all the damage that I have done to it. Yeah. And what, what kind of shape can I get myself to? What, those were the kind of things that motivated me on the days. Like I, you know, I didn't want to train or it's like, you're about to go out in front of, you know, 80,000 people and embarrass yourself. Do you really want to do that? You know? So, but it's always passion. I see that, you know, in spades, you, you know, when you look at a lot of the articles and, and the interviews you've done and, and the documentary and, and you can see, especially when you kind of get towards the last couple, you know, manias and, and the one that sticks out is really the, the, your, your match against Roman Reigns. Yeah. And, you know, you're clearly very disappointed with that. What was it about that match? And what was it about that experience for you that really left such a bad taste in your mouth? Well, I knew my hip was bad. My other hip, you know, I already had one fixed, but the other one was in just really bad shape. And 
I, I committed to do it and I knew what they wanted to do. So as hard as I tried and as hard as I, I worked, I, I just couldn't get myself to the point where I needed to be. And um, it was just disappointing that, that I put myself out there in that, in that kind of shape. And I mean, you can just tell why I, I could barely move. And well, I mean, it's pretty well documented everything we did before the match started. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, you could see it in a lot of those interviews and even now you can tell your, your disappointment. And I, I guess from my perspective, you know, watching you go through that is Dugas, you know, injects your knee beforehand. You're limping down the whole uh, walkway that 80 yards. But what was so fascinating to me is at the end of that, even though it wasn't the match you envisioned, there's so much of this that, you know, I look at that I'm watching this as, and I, I can't say that I'm a, a diehard fan. I, I really enjoy the entertainment value, but I'm sitting here watching this and you're this competitor in this match. This is your first or second loss in 23 matches at WrestleMania. And you're gazing out in this massive crowd and they start chanting your name. The winner, Roman Reigns, has already exited. You've really even outlasted him in the ring despite that. And then, you know, even though this departure is not really what you envisioned and you really didn't meet that personal goal, the crowd's still chanting your name. And then you go to lay your hat and your coat in the center of the match, you know, really signifying this end of this, potentially end of this, you know, beloved career. You know, but what, what struck me is, is, you know, despite that, you know, you're really disappointed. It seems like there's this disappointment of part of this career. And in my head, I'm thinking, you know, one match doesn't define the entirety of the accomplishments you've accumulated really throughout your remarkable career. Was this a blemish to you on your career or was this just one one off thing that kind of left you a little bit, you know, frustrated? Well, so I, I look at things like I don't I've never looked at things like, OK, th- these are, uh, you know, I've accomplished this. I've accomplished that. I've accomplished that. To me, it's it's the last image that people see. You know, I'm at that point, I'm 50 plus years old. I said that I would do it and, and wasn't able to deliver on what people expect. And I, I told myself years earlier, I was like, I don't want to get to the point in my career where a dad is taking his kids to come see the undertaker wrestle, you know, like a dad that grew up cause I've been around a long time. So y'all, you know, I, I, I this is the, I could visualize this in my head at this day. Oh, you wait, till, I'm going to, wait till you see the undertaker, wait till you see him, you know, in the ring and what, you know, and then get there and then see what they saw that night. And then the dad have to turn to the kids. Well, you should have seen him win, right? Like I just, there was one thing that I never ever wanted to happen. And that's exactly what happened. And it was, it was disappointing to me that, uh, and, and I knew in January when I was in the rumble, like you could tell I was overweight, I was out of shape. But I, but I knew what they wanted to do. And it was important for me to pass that baton on or, or do what I could for Roman, who's, you know, he's the next generation, you know. So it was, yeah, it was just, it was just a bad, bad deal. And, um, and that was as probably an honest a moment that you'll probably ever see in wrestling was me taking that hat and coat and putting it in the ring. Cause I knew at that point I was done um, and uh, I was so, I, I was so disappointed that anything else I'd ever accomplished. I couldn't think of that. I couldn't think of I couldn't yeah. think of WrestleMania 25 and Houston with Shawn Michaels. All those thoughts were gone. It was just, you just stunk the joint out and you know, yeah. you let a lot, you let a lot of people down yeah. and, 
um, you know, which in turn, uh, eventually it, it, it becomes the motivation uh, for the next year. Yeah. Um, Do you feel like there was some redemption that you gained throughout those next, you know, next couple of years before, you know, your last and final match? Yeah, I think, well, you know, the, the next year, I mean, I was probably in the best shape and best condition that I'd been in in a long time. And it was, it was a kill match. I just, you know, I was working with Cena and it was over in like four or five minutes. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Cause I trained, I mean, <laughs> I trained harder than I had. I mean, I, I trained hard as it is to, to get ready for mania, but I had an extra, like I am redeeming myself. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to redeem myself to the point where that was just a, a flash. And that was just a bad memory. And then we go out in four minutes and, you know, Vince thought it was, Vince thought it was hilarious because, <laughs> you know, he's keeping up with me my whole, my whole camp. Right. right. And he's like, you know, how you doing? I'm like, uh, you know, I'm doing good. I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm ready to go. So I show up thinking, you know, I'm going to do 30 minutes and, and have this war with John Cena and it's four minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, uh, at least you were prepared. Um, I was definitely I was over prepared for that one. That was for sure. I thought it was very uh, apt or apropos that you know your your last uh, event was the uh, Survivor Series, which is the same one that you started your career with. And um, I actually got chills kind of reading you know, the description where you know you basically said that my time has come to let the Undertaker rest in peace. You know the gong told ten times and you gave the throat slash. Yeah, man, I got chills just reading that. What was it like for you on that stage the last time you said you know I'm, I'm walking away? It was. Um, you know, I'd already come to peace with, with my decision, but it was it, it was really real. Once I put the hat and the coat on, um, and I let you know, I, I let photographers and the and the camera crews kind of follow me around that day. But knowing that I was putting I was putting that hat and coat on for the last time, uh, and making that walk to the ring in that capacity, it, it was tough and. Yeah it was probably best that I didn't say much more than I did, or I would have killed 30 years of work. I would probably turned into a, a blubbering idiot, but, uh, it was, it was, it was a, it was a strong, tough moment. And, you know, like I said, I'd already come to grips with the fact like, okay, you've gotten everything out of this sponge that you're going to get. There's nothing left, but, you know, once when I put the hat and the coat on, things always it just you just feel different. It's yeah. like I might have one more in me, but <laughs> yeah, no, that was it. No, that was it. What has Vince meant to you throughout this process? Because you know, you describe your your initial meeting, and there's this question of whether or not you were even going to get picked up. And and over the years, it sounds like you have been the most loyal person at the company. Uh, you've been there the longest. You've really dedicated and sacrificed you know, more than anyone else has. And um, it sounds like you and Vince have really developed a very strong relationship. What, what does he mean to you in your career and as, as a friend? Yeah, I, I don't say this about a lot, a lot of people because I think people say it a lot of times just, you know, as a, as a cliche, but I mean, I love the man. He changed my life and it gave me an opportunity and, and, have a, and lead a lifestyle and have a lifestyle that I wouldn't have otherwise had. And all he did, all he did was give me an opportunity. And then through the years, it was, it was, and I, I just, with, with Vince, it was that, that opportunity that he gave me, he didn't promise me, you know, okay, you're going to have this 30 year career and you're going to have these matches. And he, he, you know, you can't, 
tell anybody that you can't look into a crystal ball and see that he said, I'm going to give you an opportunity. And, uh, he gave me that opportunity. And, and basically that told me that he believed in me. So I had that, but then on the other side, I had what they told me at WCW, you'll never draw a dime. You know, that was kind of the catalyst to the loyalty. You said this and he did this. Then, you know, obviously everybody knows about the Monday night wars and, WCW opening up the checkbook and all that, that they couldn't have stroked a check big enough. Yeah. And, and, and we were, I mean, we struggled. I mean, we, we struggled for a while and our product was not, was not good for a while. And we got beaten the ratings, but this guy, he believed in me. So it, I was going to stand by him. And if we were the last two on that ship, then we'd go down together. And, you know, people question that. And I, I don't think so much now because you know my, my career is over, but, you know, there's those people, it's, it's just like free agency. It's like guys have got to go, go where the money is. And I can't blame people for making as much money as they can, especially, you know, sports like football, because it could all be over in one play. Yeah. So I, I get that. But I don't know that it was the smartest. I think hindsight being 2020, it was, but it, probably not the smartest deal to like not even entertain anything. And, he was good to me and and i felt like because you know he gave me that opportunity i'll always stand by his side and and then obviously our it's it's not even anymore it's not even like we're i call him the boss you know anytime i call him on the phone you say boss what's up but our relationship at this point is it's vince and mark and what are you doing you know he'll bust my chops are you training are you working out you doing anything you know that's the the kind of gist of our conversations yeah. at this point. If there's something that has to be done on the professional level, usually somebody else calls me and yeah. we discuss it. So, yeah. well, I think uh, it's a very special thing, and you could tell in, in a lot of the interviews that he's done uh, how much he cared about you too. So it's a pretty impressive thing to see the loyalty and the, the things that have been built uh, in your 30 years there. Are you still involved at the WWE in any way? Uh, we're working on some some projects to do different things, uh, obviously outside of the ring. Hopefully, you know, we get on top of this COVID thing eventually, and um, I'd like to be in a position where I can get a little more hands-on with the young talent and, and mentor a little bit. I think I got a lot to, to offer, yeah. and, and, and I've always enjoyed that. I've always enjoyed talking, you know, X's and O's and why I do this or why, you know, you do that. So hopefully, uh, and I've talked a lot with, with uh, Triple H about uh, you know getting down to Orlando and working with some of those guys, like I said, I still had the passion. You know, I mean, I, I know my days are are done making that slow walk, but uh, I, I still have a passion. I still love the business, and yeah. I still want to see the business continue to grow. Yeah, and uh, so that, I mean, that would be a great transition. Um, and it sounds like with you know, like you said, from when you first broke in to what they have now, it's it's quite different. But I think having someone with the experience that you've had to kind of reinstill this idea of, you know, there's a lot of things you still got to work on despite having all these um, sort of things that are already, you know, available to you as far as resources, having someone with the, the wisdom that you do would be highly valuable uh, to the company, one, one would imagine. Just a couple other things here in terms of just, you know, some, some random questions here. Did you have a favorite venue you like to wrestle in? I love Madison Square Garden. Yeah. I never liked getting into the city and getting into the building, but once you're in there, I mean, that's just, that's just the Mecca, in my opinion, you know, Madison Square Garden. And they were the, really the first arena that lined the halls with the big 
pictures of, you know, you, there'd be Sinatra, you know, yeah. when he was performing there and Elvis and Ali and Frazier. And, wow. you know, they, I mean, those big iconic photos line the halls there. And obviously I was a huge Muhammad Ali fan and a huge Elvis fan. And for years, the way the dressing room that I usually used, I would come out and I would see Ali and then I'd make my left turn and there was Elvis. And those are like two of the last things that I would see before I would go through the curtain. Uh, I was just always really thought that was cool. Madison Square Garden is, it's just, it's just an amazing venue and it's always a fun place. The audience is, uh, you, you got to work. They're smart and, and they're an intelligent crowd. So you can't call it in. You just can't mail it in. You got to yeah. go out there and, and work. And if you don't, they're going to let you know about it. And, uh, so that's, that's, that's probably New my favorite. That's yeah. New York. Oh, man. That's oh, great. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> How would you want your legacy to be remembered by, by your fans and by the people who really kind of followed you and watched you? I, I just want people to understand how important it was for me to be the undertaker for them. And I think it's important that they know that I did. I never called it in. Like you said, I just every night, you know, I gave it everything that I had. And it's been the pleasure one of the, you know, my my wife and kids is the the highlight of my life is going out and performing and performing all over the world for people that stuck with me for so long in a, in a business where it's kind of a flavor of the week a lot of times. But my, my fan base was so loyal, like I just never took it for granted and I enjoyed whether I felt like crap or no matter what hurt, it was always when that bell tolled you know, that guy was there to, to give you the best he had. And, you know, I, I hope people really, you know, they understand that and, and appreciate that more so than anything. Yeah. That's amazing. And any last, you know, parting words or, or advice for, for the listeners here today? Yeah, I'll go, I'll take it back to the medical failure is, is don't shortcut. Uh, if you, if you do end up in a, you know, with some type of orthopedic surgery or any kind of surgery is don't shortcut the process. Yeah. It, you're only setting yourself up for failure. Uh, I learned the hard way and had to realize that I didn't know everything that I thought I did. Uh, as far as like, any athlete that might be watching this, that really is, is key. Like as, as dire as everything seems at the moment, it will get better and you will get back and uh, just put your time in and, and do the process. Doctor, you guys are amazing. Between Dr. Bird, Dr. Sue, Dr. Andrews, Dr. Dugas, who kind of made me like robo wrestler, but it's it, it's amazing. I mean, I, my career doesn't last for thirty plus years without doctors like that, yeah. and I'm, each one of them are played such a, a pivotal part in my career. You know, so many times my career was right on the cusp of being over, and boom, I get the right doctor at the right time, and yeah. here we are. There we are 30 years later. Well, we appreciate that. I mean, it's, you know, you're right. The dedication to the recovery is huge and uh, we appreciate the the gratitude uh, because, you know, this is what we work for is to be able to let people go back to the, you know, their passion. And so I'm so glad to hear the stories of all the doctors who were uh, part of that and who were able to contribute. So really appreciate, you know, everything. And for me, you know, in closing here, I think that you, you were a man who really has defied the very nature of the character that you personified by really not giving up refusing to succumb to pain 
suffering and anguish. And when your whole purpose really was to prepare those for death as the undertaker and prepare them for the world beyond, you know, perhaps you really learned uh, some wisdom from the shortcomings of those who have gone before you. Uh, because with that wisdom, I think you really kind of escape the death of an early career by pushing so hard and uh, really getting through all of that. And, and through your sheer determination, grit, loyalty, and virtue, the undertaker or Mark Calloway has really bestowed eternal reverence on this character that you created and fostered while simultaneously, and probably more importantly, cementing the immortality of such an exceptional man that you've become really among your peers. And so I can't thank you enough for the time that you've committed to to share with us really your experience and what you went through from an injury standpoint and pain standpoint and, and surgery and recovery standpoint. And I'm, I'm proud to have experienced this with you. So thank you so much. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed it. Um, I really do. And like I said, I can't thank the, the doctors enough. And I, I've enjoyed sharing this part of my career. Uh, uh, hopefully somebody will learn something from it and take sure. something from it and help them along their journey and, uh, and become the best that they can be at whatever they decide they want to do. Awesome. Well, I thank you so much again. That's a great way to finish. Thank you. As the final seconds tick off today's podcast, we here at the Victory Over Injury Podcast and the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center would like to sincerely thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to a deeper dive into the world of sports medicine. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. Until next time, be well and take care. Goodbye. On the next episode of the Victory Over Injury Podcast. My guest today is one of my closest mentors and bears the greatest responsibility for influencing my decision to stay in Birmingham, Alabama, Dr. Jeff Dugas, who is an orthopedic surgeon and managing partner and co-founder of the Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center here in Birmingham, Alabama. You are the head team surgeon for the WWE. Uh, right. How did you get in and involved with that and, and what's your role with them right now? So my first involvement with them was covering them when I was a fellow and they came to town and they had an event and Dr. Andrews asked me to go cover it. And then they did it the next year and I started going just to be there. And I got to know some of the people and Dr. Andrews would operate on these guys all the time. And when Dr. Andrews had his heart attack in 2006, he was in the ICU and Dave Batista, the animal, ruptured his triceps for the third time. I was up yeah. and they brought video cameras. His wife was in the room watching and, and I had to make him a new tricep. So I had to use a hamstring tendon, make him a new tricep wow. through bone tunnels. And yeah. just very complex reconstruction. Yeah. I get to know Dave a little bit and I keep going to the WWE stuff. And this is before they really had a team position. These guys break stuff all the time Yeah, and they get hurt. The, the, some of the, things that you see it's it's entertainment yeah. it's they're they're athletic actors and and they're really good at it but they do get hurt yeah. more frequently than you'd like to see and sometimes the injuries are significant i mean we've seen some pretty big injuries and um it, it's been great so i just kind of molded into that over time and i've been officially with them for the last i don't know probably five or six years but i've really worked with them for probably 15 Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center has built a worldwide reputation for excellence in sports medicine and orthopedic patient care, research, education, and prevention. We couldn't have done it without our dedicated physicians and staff and the hundreds of thousands of patients who have trusted in our team to aggressively pursue victory over injury. Our practice works as a team to deliver multidisciplinary sports medicine and orthopedic care, a concept pioneered by our co-founder, Dr. James Andrews. 
This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other health care services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their health care professionals for any such conditions. 